This episode of the Ed Search Podcast is brought to you by PowerSchool. By combining Schoology's award-winning LMS with PowerSchool's education technology suite, PowerSchool connects everyone in your district. From the back office to the classroom to home, PowerSchool unifies your technology to keep learning going, even when the whole world stops. Learn more at homeroomtohome.com. That's homeroomtohome.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at Ed Surge. And I'm Becky Koenig, an Ed Surge reporter. For a few years now, publishers have been offering colleges a new kind of deal. Order digital course materials for their students in bulk at a discounted rate and then pass the savings on to those students. It sounds simple enough and appealing. I mean, who doesn't want cheaper textbooks? But the fine print on the plans have raised some questions and concerns from students, some professors, and consumer advocates. We've been reporting about these deals in stories on edsurge.com. And in this episode, we'll take a closer look at these textbook models that many colleges are trying these days. And we'll learn why it is more complicated than you might think to lower textbook costs. Wherever these programs go, they tend to stir up drama among students and sometimes professors. We're going to focus in on one new program. It's at the University of California at Davis. They call it the Equitable Access Program. One surprise is that for something advertised as saving students money, students are the most vocal opponents of it. Some of them worry that the people who make up best in these programs are the textbook companies themselves. Uh, you know, they're the ones behind this program, and they don't exactly have a good track record when it comes to making textbooks more affordable. So, you know, you kind of have to wonder why all of a sudden they're portraying themselves as uh, our saviors, and uh, they are going to be the ones to uh, save us from the high textbook prices that they set themselves. So I think everyone should definitely be suspicious of... uh, these types of programs and, and really look into how it's going to affect them. That was Yu Cheng Wang, and he's going into his second year at the university studying material science and engineering. Still, colleges are increasingly taking the deal, um, and some administrators say it's solving a real equity issue at colleges. Because while, you know, once upon a time there was a tradition of every student going to the campus bookstore at the beginning of the term and buying some books, I mean, that's, that's what I did when I went to college. These days, though, some students just choose not to get materials, in part because the cost of textbooks is now so high, and we're at a time when tuition is also soaring. More than a third of students don't have their assigned books on the first day of class, according to a survey by the National Association of College Stores. That's one in three students who maybe are going without the assigned reading materials. Uh, Many students reported that they wait to get the textbooks because they rely on their own judgment about whether the books truly are necessary to succeed in their classes. Yeah, the the whole culture around textbooks and course materials has really changed in recent years. Um, And it's now probably a minority of students that do that thing of standing in the line at the campus bookstore to buy new books every term. And it's really because the internet has made it far easier for students to get assigned books in more affordable ways, like buying used copies on Amazon, or renting books through companies like Chegg. Recent studies show that a significant share of students do rent their textbooks, and an increasingly large percentage report that they download materials for free. Some of those are intentionally free, like open educational resources intended to be affordable options, 
but other students uh, may be pirating copies illegally. All this ends up being a major challenge for the business model of publishers. It's also a concern for colleges, who worry that students don't have the materials they need to do well in their classes. And that could affect things like retention if students get off track or drop out. Exactly. And so it's against this backdrop of changed student behavior that publishers and large bookstore chains have launched bulk book deals, and they often call them inclusive access programs. So how do these programs work? Traditionally, instructors assign books for their courses, and it's up to students to take those books uh, however they prefer, whether going to the bookstore, getting them online, or going to the library. With inclusive access programs, on the other hand, students pay for an access code to digital copies of textbooks and courseware, or in some cases, the codes come with the class and students are charged a course fee. Those access codes typically are only really available through official sources, like the college bookstore. And many college systems are set up to automatically charge students for those access codes unless students decide to opt out. Uh, Proponents of this kind of system say inclusive access is beneficial for students because it allows colleges to negotiate discounted rates on textbooks for everybody, and that cuts the costs for students. Uh, And supporters also say these programs help ensure students have all of their assigned books from day one. Yeah, so I guess that's the idea. That's why it's called inclusive access, um, that everyone is included, so all students end up with the required materials. But those arguments aren't convincing everyone. Right. So independent bookstores and some students have even filed lawsuits over inclusive access, arguing that the practice amounts to an illegal monopoly Publishers, of course, disagree. Let's get back to what's happening at UC Davis. This fall, the university plans to roll out a new textbook system it calls Equitable Access. It will charge students $199 per quarter, and in return, they'll get access to all of their assigned course materials, mostly in a digital format. The university developed this program itself, and it will run through the college-owned bookstore. To learn more about it, we talked to Jason Lorgan, Executive Director for the University's Council on Student Affairs and Fees, the Equitable Access Program, and the UC Davis Stores. Uh, It is an evolution of our Inclusive Access Program, and the primary difference between an Inclusive Access Program and an Equitable Access Program is Inclusive Access is usually at the course level. And so faculty members decide on a course-by-course basis whether they're going to participate or not. And equitable access is at the campus level, so the entire campus is moving in this direction. The other difference is inclusive access has a unit price per item, so each course has a different cost. And in equitable access, it's basically a subscription program, so it has a flat rate price And so students will pay the same amount regardless of what courses they're in or regardless of what major they are in, uh, which is actually the way all other student fees are um, collected. So for example, we don't make a decision to charge different tuition rates for English majors or engineering majors, but we do charge engineering majors significantly more for their textbooks. And so this sort of equalizes that out. Lorgan says a few different influences went into the design of the program. Uh, It's supposed to work a lot like student health insurance, the cost of which fluctuates a bit from year to year based on how much students use it and what actuaries recommend. 
this comparison to health insurance is interesting. And it's a reminder of what a weird market college textbooks have become. Just like in healthcare, it's become really tough to figure out what things cost to create and to deliver. And also like in healthcare, the people who make decisions about what to buy are not the same ones who actually buy them. In this case, professors pick the books to assign, but then students are the ones who actually have to pay the bill. And sometimes they buy textbooks with financial aid money subsidized by the government. But there's another metaphor on Lorgan's mind, and this one is from consumer technology. Because this new textbook pricing model is somewhat similar to a Netflix or a Spotify subscription. And Lorgan thinks it reflects a broader shift from print and physical media toward digital. Quite frankly, we've tried to look at how other forms of media have moved to both streaming and subscription. And so our biggest example is music. And so if you look at, you know, I was a college student in the late 80s, early 90s. And if you were to go into my dorm room, you would have found a whole bunch of CDs. And it was sort of like a point of pride, your music collection, right? I think the biggest consumer of music is the college demographic. And today, if you go in a dorm room, you don't see any physical media because it's all digital, right? And you don't own it. You stream it. You subscribe to a service such as Spotify or Pandora or something. And so we've looked at not only the change from print to digital, as I mentioned, the change from ownership to streaming and subscription. And we've really tried to adapt how students are behaving in all of their other um, consumption of media. After the break, a closer look at who really benefits from textbook subscriptions. Stay with us. COVID-19 has pushed schools and districts into a new era of learning. Parents don't have to go to a school building to enroll their students, but can now register from anywhere. Training your teachers and providing ongoing professional development no longer requires a conference room, but can happen virtually. Assessments don't need paper and pencil hand-ins, but can take place on the same digital platforms as learning. That's why PowerSchool, now with Schoology, provides education technology that can ensure the learning continues, whether it's in the classroom, at home, or a blend of both. Flexibility is critical so that schools and districts can rapidly adjust to support all students' academic and emotional needs with continuity, and ensure teachers are supported and trained to teach in any situation. PowerSchool can ensure that your district remains operational even when the school buildings have to close. Learn more at homeroomtohome.com. That's homeroomtohome.com. Now back to the episode. That UC Davis student, Wang, the sophomore, is pretty passionate about textbooks. He brings an international perspective to the topic since he grew up in Taiwan and went to high school in Australia. He said he finds all the little fees that American colleges charge students like him bizarre. Wang first learned about the concept of inclusive access when he received an email from his university telling him that he would be charged about $100 for a digital math textbook. He looked the same book up online and realized he could rent a physical copy of it for less than $30. The same thing happened with my philosophy textbook, actually. The digital ebook that they were providing was $30, and you can get a used copy of that book on Amazon for the same price. So, you know, you're paying the same amount of money and you don't even get a physical book that you can keep. So, um, when I started looking more into these programs, I realized that 
most of the time you're paying more than the, than you would need to. And it's just not worthwhile to opt into these programs because you're not going to be saving any money. It was on the UC Davis Reddit page that he learned that the program was moving to the next level with an equitable access model. Like other students posting on Reddit, the first objection Wang has to this kind of program is its price, that $199 cost per quarter. Um, this program will be providing digital ebooks that expires at the end of the term. So you don't get to keep these ebooks. And this essentially makes it a really expensive ebook rental program. And I've talked to my friends about this for a little bit, and people have said that they don't pay anywhere close to $200 a quarter for textbooks. Um, and a lot of people are saying that on our uh, UC Davis Reddit page, people are saying that the most that they pay for a quarter is about $100, really because students are buying used textbooks or they're borrowing from the library. And the more you look into this program, the sort of the red flags start coming up because you know you realize that very few students are going to benefit from these programs um, and the bookstore director has also said that some students are going to pay more under these programs and on top of that the publishers will make a significantly more revenue with these equitable access programs Publishers do stand to benefit financially from this kind of program, Lorgan, the administrator at UC Davis, admits. To go through the math on this, he used the example of a cognitive psychology textbook assigned in one of the university's introductory courses. The new book costs the university $167, and a used copy costs the university about $100. Through the bulk buying arrangement, however, each copy will cost the college just $39. Let's say there's 80 students in a course. And so remember, the price used to be $167. And so we have 80 students, so I'm going to look for 80 books. And so because I have an incentive currently to go after a used book because of price, I go to the publisher as an absolute last resort, and I only go to them for the balance of what I couldn't get used. So the first quarter, they get 100% of the sale because it's a new edition, right? But after the first quarter, most universities are pretty good at getting most of them used now. And so, I'm, so in that case, I might get 70 used copies, which is zero, 70 times $0 equals $0 going to the publisher. And then 10 new copies times $167, that gives them $1,670 in revenue in the old model, right? In the new model where they've reduced their price to $39, I'm now buying all 80 from the publisher. 80 times 39 is $3,120. So by them reducing their price in the neighborhood, in this case of like, I think this one's like 60 or 70%, they've reduced their price. They've actually increased their overall revenue. And so when you look at the real drivers of cost, you know, it's sort of ironic because, you know, I've been doing this for 27 years. And for at least the first half of my decade, I strongly believed that used books lowered the cost of textbooks. And so 
the paradigm in my mind has shifted that used books actually significantly increase the cost of textbooks. So if a student planned to purchase new copies of expensive textbooks for five classes each quarter, then a $200 flat fee would save the money Wang, the student I talked to, acknowledged. But he doubts many students do that. He shared his own method of saving money on textbook costs. Well, my favorite way to get textbooks is actually borrowing through the library. At UC Davis, we have these course reserve systems at our library where you can check out a textbook for two hours at a time. And you can renew this as many times as you want, as long as there's no one that's waiting for the textbook. And um, I've never had anyone wait for the textbook, so I can just renew it as many times as I want. And uh, this is great for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons it's, well, first of all, it's free, so I didn't have to pay anything. And second of all, you actually get a physical textbook that you can flip through and you can read. So I can just close my laptop, turn off my phone, and, and there won't be any distractions. Um, another reason why I like to borrow textbooks through the library is because it sort of forces me to go to the library and I have to, I'm forced to study in a way and do my homework. So I, I prefer to just borrow my textbook from the library. But this doesn't work when Wang takes classes that require him to do homework through a digital courseware system. I have had classes where you need the textbook, which is available at the library, but you also need a digital access to do some sort of homework. And essentially, this makes it so that there's no point in, in borrowing from the library anymore because uh, I can't access any of the digital stuff. So I have to basically go through inclusive access or try and find these digital codes elsewhere. Uh, I really don't like these digital homework systems. Uh, one, because there's usually some sort of technical difficulty that, that happens or sometimes the system doesn't work. And also it's just really frustrating, especially when you're taking STEM classes. And a lot of these classes like math, for example, it's easier to just do the homework by hand instead of trying to type, type it all out on the computer. Um, and on top of that, with these digital access codes, you can't buy them used and uh, it's just overall, it's gonna be more expensive for us. Wang tries to avoid this problem by doing a little research about which professors use courseware and then not signing up for their class sections. He thinks this may get harder to do under equitable access, though, since, as Lorgan mentioned, it's moving campus-wide. Wang is worried that students may not realize they have to opt out of the program. He's obviously done a lot of research about this, but it doesn't seem likely that every single student will invest the time that he has. It doesn't matter if only one of your classes require textbooks. Um... It's $200, you take it or you leave it. The deadline to opt out of this program is three weeks before the first day of class. And, and that's just uh, outrageous, really, because you know two weeks into the first day of class, students are still adding classes or dropping classes because we're, uh, we're attending class and we're seeing which ones we like better. So having the deadline three weeks before class even starts is, is just unacceptable. But Lorgan says students will be able to opt out in the same way they can opt out of student health insurance 
when they receive their tuition bills prior to the start of each term, and that there will be some flexibility for students to opt out or opt back in through the first three weeks of class during the ad drop period. As part of our negotiation, we um, negotiated that we would expect a certain number of students to opt out. And so our estimate is uh, over the long term, about 15% of our students will opt out, which is a large number. It's, we have over 30,000 undergrads, so that's about 4,500 students. And we also believe that the uh, lot, highest quarter of opting out will be the first term because whenever something is new, people sort of want to look at it before they sort of engage with it. But it has resulted in our ability to reduce price significantly. So Becky, what do professors have to say about this program? Leaders of the university's academic senate sent a letter to the chancellor this spring saying that they do not support the equitable access effort in its current form. They expressed concern about its costs, its opt-out structure, and they wondered whether faculty might be pressured into assigning particular publisher-influenced digital books. But Lorgan says the program will not affect academic freedom in that way. Yeah, so faculty will continue to behave the way faculty have always behaved. So we have perhaps 30% of our courses that don't currently use textbooks at all. And so those 30% of faculty can continue not using textbooks. We have faculty who use library resources. Those faculty members can continue to use library resources. And this program will actually deliver um, the link to those library resources. Similarly, some faculty use open educational resources. Um, and we will also deliver the links to those open educational resources through this program. The inclusion of library content and open educational resource content into this program has dramatic student benefit in future cost because if more faculty started adopting OER or library content when the actuarial science firm did the analysis each year, the cost pressure would continue to go down on that program. In a time of increased attention to equity and diversity, this name, Equitable Access, is kind of curious. What does Wayne make of that? He thinks it's clever marketing, but he's not convinced it's accurate. With these sort of inclusive access and equitable access programs, they really like to use a lot of these buzzwords to make the program seem uh, very friendly and to make it seem like it's going to help students. The, they're calling it equitable access because they want everyone to pay the same price for textbooks. So they have been saying and suggesting that STEM majors actually pay more for their textbooks than other majors, for example, humanities majors. So it is their hope that even though some humanities majors are not going to benefit this from this program and they're going to pay more for this program, it is their hope that they can also opt in. And by having a lot of people opt in, somehow the price of textbooks will be reduced and this is going to help everyone with a lower textbook cost, which I, I don't know how that's supposed to work. Um, so, I mean, it sounds attractive to STEM students because supposedly we're, we are paying more for textbooks. But in reality, I don't think STEM majors are also going to benefit from this program because a lot of our classes actually use textbooks for, for references and a lot of the information that we get is through lecture and so they're trying to use uh, 
equity and equality as sort of a way to convince students that this is somehow good for us. Not surprisingly, Lorgan disagreed. You know, if you think of even the term equitable access, the two terms within the title are key to the goal. So we've talked quite a bit about equity, equity both in, in terms of cost between majors, but also what I think the biggest piece of equity is also when there's two students sitting next to each other and one has access to the textbook and the other doesn't, that is not an equal situation. And so improving access is another core component of the program. Since Wang has done his homework and has strong feelings about textbook affordability, I asked what he thinks would help students like him at UC Davis. If you want students to access the textbooks, the way to encourage that is to provide them with as many options as possible. So it means, uh, it, it means the opposite of these digital access codes where you can only buy them through the publisher. Uh, this means that we should be supporting the library services so that students can borrow textbooks from the library. We should be supporting more adoption of these free open access textbooks and uh, not trying to eliminate the used book market or, or uh, prevent students from renting physical textbooks through Amazon. Uh, by providing students with a lot more options, it makes it more likely that they are going to get textbooks. So it's actually the opposite of what these programs are actually trying to do. Lorgan, the administrator, knows some students are not excited about this new program, and he says they are still welcome to get materials on their own. Students who don't think this is a good thing and they want to rent or do something else, um, they can opt out. It's super easy to opt out. Um, and we expect that many people will opt out. Um, you know, in our inclusive access program, thousands of students opt out every term. The vast majority stay in. Um, and so this is not uh, eliminating any options that students have. It's adding a lower cost flat rate option to all of the options that exist today. So if a student likes to go to Amazon or a student likes to rent or whatever, those options still exist. The student just needs to opt out. Interestingly, the University of California at Davis had the chance to beta test its new program this spring. Uh, the pandemic hit during spring break in between two of its quarters. And since students would not be coming back to campus to buy or rent physical books, Lorgan and his team had about 11 days, he said, to put their delivery system for digital materials into action. He says they were able to use the college's learning management system to deliver about 65% of digital materials professors had ordered. Uh, and he thinks that the model they've developed for UC Davis will start to catch on elsewhere. A lot of universities have been seeking information on this program. Um, as uh, and some of them are actually in the approval process of implementing this program in the future. So we think we'll be alone uh, launching this in fall of 2020, but we think we'll have quite a bit of company in fall of 2021. So what is the best way to solve the problem of rising textbook prices? Should colleges be looking to healthcare for models or to consumer tech? Or is this something totally unique that calls for a new solution? Publishers have certainly been promoting their digital delivery bundling programs during the pandemic as a solution for remote learning. Meanwhile, lawyers for those consumer lawsuits I mentioned earlier think their cases may be consolidated this summer. And by next year, a judge may rule about whether they can turn into a class action suit 
representing all students who are affected by these systems. We'll be watching to see what happens, so stay tuned for more reporting. This has been the EdSurge podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage on how college course materials are changing, sign up for EdSurge newsletters or check out our website, edsurge.com. This episode was edited by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. Thank you.